Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pinchon. My name is Cody. I am one of the co-hosts. I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. We are following the reading schedule from the Pinchon subreddit, so today we're discussing chapters 11 through 15 of Mason and Dixon. Uh, Will, can you please give us a summary of those chapters? Happy to. The Reverend prefaces the next section. Here, while he's off to Indian, India and the islands to its east, Mason is set for St. Helena, and Dixon is to return to the Cape after accompanying Mason on his journey. And so, he's not actually here for any of this. Mason is to assist the young, connected upstart astronomer Neville Maskelin in measuring the motions of Sirius. Dixon will watch a clock. The island of St. Helena is described as some natural-formed Escher illustration where a rise in elevation is met with a sense of dissension, and the waves endlessly reverberate through soil, stone, and flesh alike. From the opinions of the locals, the crashers are of a, of a mild sort. It has been famous for ages as, as a facilitator of madness, and that reputation seems justified. Acquainting themselves with Jamestown, they happen by the local gallows, and what coincidence, so does a one-time enamorata of Masons, Florinda. She's there with her fiancé, but before delivering such presumably dread news, she and Mason launch into song, reminiscing how they'd met at their own local gallows at Tyburn. While they differ in sensibility, they share a taste for the morose and heretic, and the widower's melancholy is just what this social climber needs, then, for her self-development. When the moment comes for him to meet Florinda's new beau, and is assumed an actor, he takes small vengeance by unleashing Dixon and his hidden powers of humor. The pair meets Masculine at, at a pub, suitably the moon, and Dixon wastes no time in making clear just how little he desires the younger man's awe, instigating collegiate rivalries, starting praiseful conversations with others about the latest gothical serials. Despite his fop sweat constituting up to 40% sheer arrogance, it seems that the locals have developed a certain fondness for the young Masculine, and the landlord brings out a birthday cake complete with icing and cheer, if a week late, to the 29-year-old's chagrin. Meanwhile, Mason and Dixon discuss, The instruments are misaligned to a catastrophic degree. Masculine is not a fool, surely. He must know. Shouldn't they let him be? Mason insists they do so, while Dixon tries to subliminally indicate broadly in the direction of plumb lines. We are treated to a depiction of a meeting of clocks. The one... MND relied upon in Cape Town is swapped for that used by Maskeline and his former partner, and as they sit alongside one another, they swap stories and warnings of hazards in their respective destinations for the time being. The one new to the island apologizes in advance for the pain of dealing with Dixon's peculiarities, while the other prom or yeah, while the other promises no relief from madness here. After their departure, Dixon makes the cause for concern evident. He introduces himself affably to the crated-up clock and makes his own apology. It seems that in his abandonment and subsequent isolation, Masculine has developed a bit of the old sensitivity. He shares rough drafts for the escape from notice upon such a claustrophobic setting, which he believes to be alive in itself. In this making acquaintance, Mason learns of the madman's reason for popularity. He's the brother-in-law of the single man next to the Pope and one or another king or emperor who holds the most unchecked power of the day, 
Robert Clive of India. At some point along this journey of harebrained theorizing, including a dragon inhabiting the volcano, Mason starts to realize the ways that his own grief has dragged him away from reality and closer in kind to Clive's brother-in-law here. As much as he may have wished for Dixon to be closer in temperament to his own, this funhouse mirror of a partnership is distressing. Masculine seems to feel quite to the contrary, excited for more philosophically-minded discourse. Mason assumes ulterior motivation. Before long, he's asking if the assistant to the Astronomer Royal has perceived any connectedness in Dixon. The talk among Masculine's own connections may indicate something untoward in his background. By the end of this, he's confided also his concern for his sister's well-being, being married to a famous opium addict and warlord of a sort, his subconscious musings in preparation for devising his later solution to the problem of divining latitude at sea, and his central terror that communication with others becomes ever more obscure, and so a hint of misapprehension can be used to startle him away, like some cat with the spray of water. We are also introduced via remembrance to Susanna Peach, Mason's sweetheart, the one who got away and married his mentor in the end. As soon as Dixon returned, Cornelius Froome has mistaken him for Mason and decided to finally shut down this English rapscallion so intent on diminishing the honor of his household. So of course he pursues Dixon through streets, taking pot shots with his elephant gun until Dixon one day rushes, but not tackles him him, taking the rifle and showing the confused Dutchman a good time in a Malay tavern. The moment they get a couple drinks down, the tables turn, and Cornelius leads Dixon to a VOC-run house of ill repute, where he unveils Ostra for Dixon's benefit. There in some back room, the Dutch pay high prices to recreate the obviously erotically charged event, where over a hundred English soldiers were crammed into the British East India Company's old, own holding cell and left to die. The black hole of Calcutta. The racial tensions, made clear, only heightened their libidos. Disgusted as Vroom enters the fray, Dixon goes looking for either Austra, for a purpose yet determined, or at least some reprieve. He settles for a bar, and meets the former policeman Bonk. Admittedly tired of the spying, Bonk has decided to go trekking, to homestead a farm, and alludes to being only one of many making such a journey. After dragging Cornelius's limp body to the household at dawn, he is warned by Greet, Crete. Rumors abound that the English intentions here, that they're trying... Sorry. Rumors abound about the English intentions here, sure that they're trying to upstage the announcement of two Dutch-made clock gifts meant for the Emperor of China, his own re-arrival towing an English one boating poorly. Unbeknownst to Dixon are the rumors about himself, the Dutch East India Company flagging him as potentially connected dangerously. Maskeline has finally realized the plumb line's mistaken hanging, and so insists they move to the other side of the island to account for the mountain's gravity in his calculations to attempt the prolific instrumental errors. Mason prays lenience, not desiring to be buffeted by the wind's opposite, which seemed to lead more surely than any other single cause on the accursed isle to utter mental dissolution. No dice. Perfectly in accord with expectations, after they get to work, back indoors where hearing is more more than a receptacle for torture, Masculine details his repeated conversations with a German soldier so abandoned on this rock that he's constantly on the brink of suicide. Masculine, touched, a bit guilty for his voluntary stay, 
agrees to buy out his contract from the VOC to get him home. Mason, instead of meeting this man, Dieter, begins to hear, more often than not, whispers than full speech, in the voice and attitude of his Rebecca. He eventually makes his way out one typically breezy midnight under the stars and sees her phantom. He tells her all that's happened, explaining his isolation, and she entreats him to wait until he's dead to do as others direct. They converse further at other occasions out on that windward bluff, and then even when he returns to Jamestown. The impossible and explicable experiences, though finally delivering exactly what Mason has been wishing for all these two years, shake the man of science, and he is barely able to keep the fright within himself until Dixon finally returns, lending a confidential and sympathetic ear. All right. Um, so let's start with everybody's just kind of general feeling on these uh, these chapters, and especially coming off of the ones that we discussed uh, last week. Uh, yeah, sorry. I, I enjoyed these chapters a fair amount. I did find a uh, a New York Times review of this book that names the first section as being particularly weak in comparison to the other two, which I think the book really shines when, when it gets to America. I think you can kind of tell that um, Pynchon's, uh is, is more like deeply familiar with um, the settings and the characters of that section. Um, I did like this section a lot. People, I've seen people online comment on the similarity. So there's some similarities between chapter 11 and the description of uh, St. Helena, Helena and some sections of Gravity's Rainbow. Um, there's some pretty, you know, the, there's, there's a, the Black Hole of Calcutta section of, of this uh, section, the part set in the brothel where you pay to re recreate that. Um, that historical event, um, you know, I, I think in our in our group chat, uh, Will has talked about it being similar to Gravity's Rainbow in terms of the mixture of um, sexual acts, uh, transgressive sexual acts with things like colonization and power dynamics. Um, so there are some kind of Gravity's Rainbow esque parts of this of this section. Um, I found it interesting in this section. There's a lot of stuff about astrology. I think, in, especially in chapter 13, um, which I, I had lived in uh, the Austin area of Texas for about five years, and I went to grad school for three of those years. And a lot of the women in the grad school I was in were uh, obsessively into astrology, uh, which is kind of because I grew up uh, Christian. I I went to a Christian high school. I went to a Christian college. So astrology was never a major part of my life. Um, you know, I used to kind of read horoscopes in the newspaper and just kind of, you know, fancifully kind of, you know, not seriously look into it a little bit. Um, but, you know, so my time in grad school was the first time I'd ever experienced being close to people who took astrology seriously. And it does seem like, I mean, I don't, masculine perhaps takes astrology seriously. I wouldn't say Mason or Dixon necessarily do, uh, but I did find that an interesting part of the chapter. I, chapter 13, I found somewhat confusing. It's There's a lot of dialogue. Um, it does seem particularly focused on uh, astrology and horoscopes, and um, I want to say like birth charts, which 
I'm I'm somewhat confused about what that even is. I know it's about like the the position of different planets and the sun and the moon uh, in terms of when you were born. I just don't understand the details. I don't know the details of that. Uh, I didn't necessarily like chapter 13 as much. It's it's 20 pages. Um, not incredibly interesting. I did really like the hanging part of chapter 11. Uh, the dialogue that the Mason has with the woman that he eventually sees in St. Helena is, is really interesting. I did love that she starts off with talking about boners like right off the bat with Mason. <laughs> um, which I don't know. Like Whenever you think of the 1700s, uh, the 1800s, the 1600s, you don't necessarily assume that people were talking in a very crass and tawdry way with one another. Um, you, my personal, maybe it's just, you know, the, the media I've consumed, but it does seem like um, you, I would assume that people would kind of avoid subjects such as erections and sex in general at this time. Uh, but this this book does seem to that section of this book does seem to kind of turn that perception on its on its head. Um, obviously, the part with the clocks talking to one another is is really good. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Byron the Bulb section of Gravity's Rainbow. It's a little bit about I've talked a little bit about uh, pension anthropomorph anthropomorphizing dogs, but it's kind of a little bit more interesting whenever uh, inanimate objects. I guess clocks do move. Uh, and have have winding gears and moving gears, but it is interesting to kind of um, get the clock's perspective on stuff like the ocean, which they kind of talk about indirectly, and it is stated that they that was the main subject they wanted to get to, which they never got to, uh, which can be... I mean, I've had some probably social interactions where a piece of gossip or a piece of news has been on probably me and the other person's mind, but for whatever reason... The uh, the interaction didn't last long enough for either of us to address what was on our minds, which is an interesting perspective on conversations and interactions between people. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. There's there's some cool parts of this section too. I mean, the part where uh, I forget the guy's name, but the the Vroom uh, patriarch shooting at Dixon because of the rumors going around about Mason having sex with his daughters and his wife and his slave. Uh, I actually, I don't know what y'all's opinions on this are. I I assume that Mason never actually, uh, I'm blanking on the word, like, you know, fulfilled the, like actually had sex with any of them. I, I was under the impression that he was kind of too scared. Um, we do get a part of this section where it's clear that Cherry Coke is editing himself in terms of, um, what he's talking about, especially as it relates to sex. So, you know, Cherry Coke could, of course, have just been implying that, that Mason had carnal relations with at least one of the women. Um, but I kind of assume that that didn't happen because, you know, Mason is, is portrayed throughout the book as, as somewhat repressed, uh, much too obsessed with his, with his dead wife and perhaps scared to, um, like sully her memory or like, you know, betray her in some way. He doesn't seem to want to move on from his ex-wife. Um, so it is interesting that those rumors were spreading around Cape Town. I mean, the rumors and gossip, which, um, you know, anyone with any experience with community, human community knows that rumors and gossip are, are often baseless. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's it's kind of an up and down section of the book. There's things to like, there's things not to like. Um, I did find chapter 13, as I've already gone over, a little bit unfocused and more of a slog to get through um, than any other chapter that we've gone over so far. Yeah, I, I think it's... Um, I, I agree with pretty much all of that. Um, I, I I did enjoy this section. It was a little bit of a of a tonal shift from the previous five chapters that we read, which were, you know, through and through pretty hilarious. I think this this section had a lot more uh, dark humor in it when there was humor and, and just general dark thematic subjects that were uh, spread out throughout here. Uh, I, I do like that you brought up the astrology bit. I actually enjoyed that part. Um, I don't I don't adhere to any of that stuff. Um, I, I remember growing up, I would read the, the horoscopes that were in the newspaper, kind of like you did, but I would always, and I, th- I think a lot of people do this, you know, if it was something where it kind of portended bad things happening, I would just, it's not, not for me today. I'm not going to worry about it. But if it was good stuff, you know, I would always kind of focus on that. And I think that's kind of what a lot of people do. But I, I, I think what's interesting about it, especially as it relates to this, because astrology definitely comes up in a lot of Pinchon's works. We saw it a little bit in, in Lot 49. I know it comes up again in uh, Gravity's Rainbow as well as in Inherent Vice. Um, but I think it's a little more interesting to examine it in this book because it's so directly compared to astronomy, which is a legitimate science, whereas astrology is this kind of fanciful, how can we make various interpretations on the the movements of the stars and the positions of the stars and the planets at certain set times. And it's really even more interesting, I think, the fact that it's so adhered to by someone like Masculine, who is a scientist through and through, but still buys into this, it, like really buys into it when we see him doing Mason's, uh, what was it, his star chart or something? Um, and he really gets into the nitty gritty of it and is really focused and really wants to make sure he gets it right. But then when it comes Dixon's turn to do it, he's just kind of wings it and just doesn't really know exactly how to do it or doesn't do it right. And it offends masculine. And I think that's one of those things about astrology is that, you know, there's no, it's never the same. It's always these different, you know, depending on who you talk to changes the, the outcome of whatever events are predicted. I have, you know, based on my birthday, uh, I remember as a kid, depending on what um where i was getting the the horoscope could change the the star sign because my birthday fell between two of them um so that always kind of clued me in as like this there's not this can't be a legitimate thing you know if if they can't even pick one set of dates to adhere to you know something's not right here but i i, I did enjoy those parts of of uh the book i think most of it as you said Luke, was kind of um really in chapter 13. Um, but, and I also, uh, I think with Mason to kind of uh, go off of what you were mentioning about that, I, I don't recall him actually having any relation with any of the broom girls. Um, I, I know they were certainly trying to get him to, but I think, you know, as you mentioned, it's uh, his, his kind of lingering and pining over his dead wife uh, really prevented him from ever actually doing anything um but i i definitely you know 
enjoyed the the clocks conversation. I got the same Byron the Bold vibe that you did, Luke. Um, and I thought that was a really fun little, I think it was like the back half of chapter 14, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but that was a, a definitely a fun um, few pages of, of listening to the clocks talk to each other and, and converse with each other. Um, and that's something I want to bring up later is, is what significance that has uh, to the story itself. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I enjoyed these five, uh, five chapters. It hasn't been my favorite part so far. Um, but I definitely, uh, enjoyed what was, uh, throughout there. I didn't, you know, I, I saw that review you mentioned, uh, about it needing to be edited. I think they mentioned, they said it was, should have been cut in half or something. I'm not sure I agree with that much of it being taken out. I certainly think, you know, it could have been pared down, uh, and not, affected the story too much i'm fine with what's there i have no complaints but i can certainly see where someone's coming from with that yeah and with the with the astrology with the subject of astrology um i do think it could be kind of a meta joke or a, a kind of allusion to the fact that pension is is so heavily associated with the with, with the 60s and early 70s uh which is a time whenever hippies were big obviously and obviously super into astrology so i do think an example of pinching kind of poking fun at the reader and being like you know this is the time period i'm so associated with don't you remember that i don't i don't know i think where we see it most is in the books that are around that time that take place in the 60s and 70s um with the exception of gravity's rainbow but i think that's also kind of when uh astrology was really starting to pick up in the mainstream um, so that may be why, I, well, I think if I'm, I think Gravity's Rainbow is more on tarot. If I'm, maybe I'm just misremembering that, but I thought there was some astrological stuff that got peppered into there too. But tarot was another one of those things that I was always kind of fascinated by, but never could buy into as a serious thing. I think that when it comes to, cause you are correct there, there is definitely like a, a downturn in interest or, or maybe readability would be a better word. Uh, kind of starting in in chapter 13 and and moving on from there. I think actually a lot of that is intentional because that marks the first time since the narrative has begun where Mason and Dixon are no longer together. And I think it's there to represent the fact that when the two of them are not around, the, the narrative itself and their enjoyment of each other kind of slows to a halt trying to to represent what that's like to the the audience because mason is not particularly interested in talking to any of the people he comes across in those last couple of chapters in this section like he talks to uh masculine because he has to you know but there are several moments in which he laments the fact that this is the position that he's in because he at first thinks the guy's insane then he thinks maybe he isn't insane then he wonders how he's ended up in this position, you know, why it is that he's doing things the way that he's doing them, why he needs his help for this. And there seems to be just a general kind of loss of romanticism in these later chapters, which I think comes from a specific need for Mason and Dixon to be together in order to not necessarily make the the story function. These are still readable chapters, but for for the actual characters to be invested in what they're doing and in the the kind of road of destiny that's been mapped out for them to actually feel connected to that. And I think the best illustration of that is the fact that 
you know, we, we see Mason wondering what is happening to Dixon when he arrives where he's headed. He's imagining what his landing is like. He's imagining being confronted by the, the patriarch of the Vroom family. He's imagining all of these things. He doesn't actually know that, that it's going on, but he's also obsessed during that period with potentially writing him a letter. And the letter that he does start writing and then throws away that we get a excerpt from is a very romanticized letter as far as the opening of it. It reads more like something that you'd, you'd send to your, your wife or uh, your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. So I think it's an illustration of, of how these two men feel about each other and the friendship that's that's sort of blossomed between them, but also the fact that when they are separate, the track they're being pushed down by whatever force is pushing them down it is no longer functioning. It, it's temporarily suspended. And that is also illustrated by the fact that the last thing Mason does after receiving a visitation from his wife is imagine what Dixon would tell him if he was also there. And so he has this this sort of direct, not necessarily replacement, but a, a temporary um, replacement of companionship there that he's missing with his wife that he probably hasn't had for a very long time. I think that the chapter is very obscure and in, at times labyrinthian in its descriptions of the places that Mason and Mescaline and all of these people are inhabiting. And I think that's very purposeful because there's a lot of concern in this chapter with what does this person represent? Where is this person from? What does this island have to do with this particular part of culture or this particular part of a company or colonialism? And these questions about trying to sort out who is who and, and for what reasons is something that's that's chiefly on the mind of of these these five chapters. And so I think the astrology portion could definitely be be an outgrowth of that. It could also be something that was included there just as a, a historical reference to the fact that astronomers would engage in astrological readings for, you know, the 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 additional money that both Mescalin and and Mason admit to receiving. But I also think it's interesting that it's used as a uh, byway to to talk about the fact that there seems to be some layer of destiny being applied between the two of them. Because when Mescalin, the man who takes this more seriously, does actually do his natal chart, there seems to be a, a deep link to Dixon there. And so I think that the reason its inclusion is there is to to once again put put this idea in the reader's mind that the two men are fated to be together, fated to be around one another, and fated to do what they're going to do, and give Mason ultimately another basically reason or question as to whether or not that is the truth, or whether he's just being messed with. Yeah, I'm I'm more sympathetic to that kind of angle on the the kind of obscurantism that starts to bleed into the book at this point. But one one notable thing, and I'm a fool because I just okay moved away from it. But on page 110, um, we have Cherry Coke start to nod off into sleep in the middle of a sentence, <laughs> and I mean it's it's not it's never just anything, you know. With, Pynchon, at the very mm -hmm. least, he's always trying to make you ask why. Um, but, I mean, it, it seems very uh, notable to me that, you know, you have these dreamlike passages describing St. Helena, and then going into the the narrative of the 
kind of insat the insanity that descends upon everyone who stays there for an extended period of time start to break down in terms of logic and cohesion uh, is is suitable to that. And uh, with regard to the astrology, I have a lot of thoughts, but um, firstly, that I think that in the little little things in this chap in chapter thirteen, which I agree is very much a slog compared to the rest of the book so far, uh, you get these kind of senses that Maskeline is in some ways connected to other characters in other books by Pinchon, the uh, the the accidental heirs who don't seem to uh, take full responsibility for what, the power that has been shoved into their hands. And whenever I come across those themes, I start to read a little bit of Pinchon's self-insert into it as the heir to, a, you know, a light aristocracy um, that, that, you know, collapsed by the time he was born, but still. Uh, and someone who went to Cornell and worked at Boeing and all of this stuff. Not to mention, you know, the, the accolades he's gotten just as an author. I see a lot of uh, Pinchon in Masculine's kind of general senses of guilt. And then when it comes to reading the natal charts for each of the two main characters, you have Mason, the person who's much more historically uh, documented and much more understood in terms of reality. Um, having his natal chart told in full. Um, whereas Dixon, who is much more of a mystery in terms of historical documentation, not only is his chart left mostly unfinished, but he is also, when we see his perspective, it's not just the frame narrative of the book, it's also the framing of Mason trying to imagine what it's like in South Africa. And I see all of that as very contiguous, as a, a self-aware comment on, hey, you know, Mason has all this information. We know what happened to him. We know his fate. We know his reasons for doing things. Dixon is not only mildly associated with some shadowy figures, but he literally is unknowable to us and to Pynchon as the author. So here I've written explicitly, hey, his fate is unknown. But going deeper into the astrology thing, when it comes to Maskeline, but also with regard to the rest of any time tarot or astrology appear in uh, Pynchon's work, uh, something to keep in mind is that those branches of thought came primarily out of esoteric sects of Christianity um, and even more esoteric uh, religions like uh, hermetic family of things. And this, this, when we're talking about masculine being super into astrology, can't be ignored that he's talking about astrology 
while he's also talking about how the land they're standing on is alive and how there's a, there's a serpent in the volcano that speaks a language we can't understand. All of that is very much um, in line with the kinds of thinking that led to the, the establishments of the, the metaphysically coherent, if not cogent, models which led monist religions to uh believe that by watching the stars you would understand what's happening on earth just as well as paying attention to what's going on around you in general though i i really love the uh i really love the descriptive passages in this uh series of chapters and also i just really love watching Mason have the tables turned on him, where instead of him being the unhinged one who Dixon, who's still a pretty weird guy, is always having to excuse and uh, accommodate, Mason is sitting in this weird, crazy island full of people who've been abandoned by the world, and he has to live there with someone who is far more unhinged than him, but shares a lot of very similar basic traits. And I think a lot of the conversations between the two of them are really funny. Yeah, they definitely are. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like laughed out loud when Mason introduces Dixon at the end of uh, chapter 11. And just the, the first thing out of Dixon's mouth is an unfinished joke that was for sure going to be <laughs> terrible. Um yes. Just so that you go through this entire like back and forth conversation between Mason and this woman that circles all these different realms of of high society or past experiences and and marriage and all of that, um, with the backdrop of you know a hanging, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, as soon as he introduces his who's probably his closest friend at this point, he just completely brings the conversation down. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was such a great way to end uh, that chapter, and it just I I love Dixon as a character for mm-hmm. things like that. Um, it's just it's I don't know. It's one of those uh, levels of silliness that I, I I like to see when when Pinchon engages in them. So uh, in line with the discussion of whether Mason slept with any of the 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 girls or the slaves in um, South Africa and Cape Town. Florinda is introduced very, very conflictedly. They break into song and they, you know, they, they, they seem excited to see each other. However, when it's, when the, the narrative mode switches to a flashback on page 111, when, when she brings up, hello, do you think he'll get much of a heart on then? The, the next line is couched. Mason gapes in despair. He'll be days late thinking up any reply to speech as sophisticated as this. In my experience, he might say, tis, a, tis usually the innocent who get them. And from then on, the, the conjugation of verbs is very varied between kind of, a, what's the term? Conditional? Subjunctive? And... Um, and past perfect, past subjunctive and perfect, which is something that Pynchon plays a lot with, and especially in this book, 
but it makes me think that, well, this meet cute probably didn't happen anything like this. And we're met, we're led to believe, and if you look at the Wikipedia summary for chapter 11, they, they say, oh, well, they, they were, they had a fling. But it's not actually described in any way, shape, or form, and the only indication of them having real past is also couched as hypothetical. Yeah, I did interpret that, at least the beginning of that section, as perhaps imaginary, because there is the use of the word will. Um, like, he will say this, he will say that, as if it's happening in Mason's mind. Um, I agree. I did. I did notice that little detail. It's a really interesting detail. Because, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's unclear if Mason perhaps doesn't remember the, the interaction very well. If Mason is, is doing some weird, like, after the fact, um, imagining the conversation uh, as if, you know, he had played it a lot better than he actually did. Another interesting thing about that conversation is it's eventually, Mason eventually figures out that she is supposedly just using him for practice for like repartee for flirtatious repartee um which you know also speaks to a kind of lack of um actual i don't know about reality but a lack of um lack of like actual like flirtatious intent um you know it it renders the whole thing kind of inconsequent inconsequential even if it is imaginary i i will i will just note it's actually it's even more uh uncertain than that. It says, what he does not consequently understand is that having reckoned him harmless, she has decided to get in a bit of exercise in that endless refining which the crafts of coquetry demand, using Mason as a sort of practice dummy. And coquetry, you know, it is usually associated with the, you know, empty flirtation, but it doesn't exclusively mean that. See, I kind of, I took that section as, uh, or at least the, the interaction the, in the past between the two of them as her kind of leading him on and just kind of m- like messing with him in a way. Because she mentions at some point, uh, somebody mentions uh, Bob Doddington and she mentions that he's a good friend of hers. And when I looked him up, he was uh, described by, uh, let me go back and see what it was. A historian uh, described him as an indefatigable schemer. Um, and it made me wonder if maybe that she picked up that kind of trait from him um, because she refers to him as a, a, what is it, a particular friend um, and that she kind of implies that she took a lot of advice from him. Uh, so that, that kind of made me wonder, you know, in, in her interaction with Mason at that time, if she was just leading him on and maybe trying to bring him into some kind of a con or a ruse that she was working on or that he was working on that Doddington was working on. Um, so I don't know it, that that's just kind of where I went with that particular reference and, and the interactions as a result. Uh, you know, I, I might be forgetting some stuff that happens later in the book, but I find it really uh, interesting how the only woman that we really see Mason actually have any sort of, personal connection with that isn't just entirely baseless flirting because at least mason is engaged in it is a, a dramatic actress she is she is somebody whose life is full of ridiculous melancholy and 
uh, puffed up tragedy. Unless I am mistaken, the person that Mason later talks about in song lyrics or poetry is the same woman, isn't it? That's Susanna Peach, who's oh, like God. his his like youth sweetheart. Um, let's. I want to go back just real quick and talk about the the frame narrative itself and uh, Cherry Coke's storytelling. Um, at the beginning of of chapter eleven, um, you have um, where is it on page one hundred six? No, I'm sorry, I'm. I'm getting ahead of myself uh there's a part it later in in the sections on page 146 where um uh pitt and pliny start to kind of question the narrative i think they did it earlier too and maybe that's what i was thinking of that that it came up earlier oh yeah 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 i'm sorry on page 105 they they the first time they kind of question it they say you know then how are we ever to know what happened among the three of them upon that little known island um and you know they're, where they're kind of questioning cherry coke's storytelling is you know the, as the reader, we should also kind of be aware of that as well, that, you know, we talked about this earlier, you know, he wasn't there for most of these, of these stories and interactions, but we're getting his perspective or his telling of it. Um, and when they, uh, when they bring that up and kind of call him out on it, um, you know, they, they either get reprimanded or uh, I think at one point uncle Ives, uh, brought them, I don't remember what it was he brought them, but he brought them something to basically like shut him up and, and let the story keep going. Yeah, that's back on 146. He hands yeah. them some chunks of gold. In the frame narrative, there are, this is noted on the Pension Wiki, but there are two different references to the, the New Testament. Um, one of them to the prodigal son, when Pitt and Pliny talk about, um, or Pliny or whatever, uh, talk about one of them becoming a wastrel and the other one becoming a lawyer. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, and then there's a joke. I can't remember the, let me look. The joke is something about how like there's no difference or something, or it was a negative joke about lawyers. Um, yeah, that's reference to the prodigal son story from the New Testament, which I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I don't read the Bible anymore. I have read the New Testament a few times in my youth. Uh, I'm not a Christian anymore, but that the prodigal son narrative, it, it, I actually do like like that part of the Bible. And then there's, I think there's the other reference that the Pynchon Wiki makes is to a story, I think from Matthew, the biblical book of Matthew about um, Jesus telling a parable about like a ruler giving his followers like different amounts of money and them like investing it or somehow turning that money into more. And um, one of them uh, putting the money in the ground and not letting it like compound interest. Which I found a little bit. The Pension Wiki makes it a, a strong connection between that and the the uncle talking about giving the kids money and it having compound interest. I felt like that was a little bit more tenuous on the part of the Pension Wiki. Um, the Prodigal Son reference is is a lot clearer than than the other one. Um, but I mean, it's interesting to think about that. You know, like at the at the time of you know Mason and Dixon don't really seem too concerned with the bible or with christianity uh but it is interesting that in the in the frame narrative um those kind of clear references seem to pop up a little bit more and the other thing i wanted to bring up about the the frame narrative and how it's used here is specifically with um with bray and there's there's what i kind of took as foreshadowing here um 
you have right before the the kind of the story shifts out of the the house where Cherry Coke is telling the story. Um, you have the part. There's a brief part where they say, "What's the mystery?" Ethelmer shrugs. Uh, Ethelmer shrugs. Didn't days take 24 hours to pass as they do now? Bray peers through the candlelight. Why, cuz how interesting. I I found that those two particular lines to be really, for me at least, kind of foreshadowing a lot of what's coming up in the next couple of few chapters, where not just the importance of time and that that whole you know didn't days take 24 hours and and how the clocks and the reference to the clocks kind of plays with the the shifting of you know the importance of time and how it was measured but also when you when and i didn't know this the my first read through i think i just totally forgot about it the tenebrae is a reference in in religious terms essentially for darkness like the 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 removal of i think it's like when they put candles out um but it's it's specifically a reference to darkness and there is a lot of darkness in in these coming chapters um which i th- i thought that just that particular line of her, you know, when you read it like that, you know, it's like, you know, darkness coming through and looking through the candlelight and, you know, it's about to take a turn into that and it's about to become very dark, you know, and, and, and take away all the light that's been kind of before everything here. Yeah, I, uh, you know, it, it's Ethelmer's statement there. I don't, I don't find it incredibly difficult to parse, but Tenebrae's response feels very... I mean, definitely not out of character, but I don't understand what she's getting at, really. Because clearly, Ethelmer, you know, he's the smug college student guy, comes back, wants to show everyone up with his fancy learning. Um, but what? why cause? How interesting. Is it just just cutting him down? Is it just that? Yeah, I wondered about that, too, because it, it did seem a little out of character for her. And I, I, I guess I kind of read it as almost just pinch on himself kind of being there for a second. And I don't know, it, it just felt more self insert than, than Bray as a character. Um, I could be wrong. And I, you know, again, I'm, I, I saw that particular line just as, as foreshadowing for the things to come, but. Well, I, I suppose where I get a little a little confused, I guess, is that the choice of how interesting as the remark. That's not, I mean, it, you know, the, the tone and the, the implication doesn't align with a simple sarcastic reply. Because, you know, what's the mystery? Didn't days take 24 hours to pass as they do now? Uh, you know, you'd expect that the, the, what Ethelmer's expecting there is for people to be like, hmm, well, that's a good point. But that's that's not interesting, is it? No, I mean, it, yeah, if if that interaction had gone differently, it definitely wouldn't have... I don't... It wouldn't, it wouldn't have felt right, I guess. I don't know. Probably just overthinking it. It might just be like, oh, how interesting of a thing to say. It, 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 no, you're right. I mean, it does have a weird feel to it and it, I, I, I can't really make sense of why she says that specifically. I just, I don't know. It, I don't want to say it felt ham-fisted as a, as a, a foreshadowing mechanism, but it definitely sits differently than the rest of the, 
the conversation. And so, yeah, it does have a weird kind of feel. Yeah, I think to explore that deeper, you'd have to ask why Ethelmer's is bringing up the fact that there's 24 hours in a day. Like, what is what is he getting at there? Because the way that I had read it anyway was just as a, oh, great, you've added such a valuable piece to this conversation. Um, but I think if there's anything deeper to, to be mined out of that, either foreshadowing or otherwise, I think it would probably come from from why Ethelmer's asking that question and what it's associated with within the the preceding chapters um because he i mean cherry coke is describing the island they're on as as one where people can go mad due to due to its its strange positioning and its its uh the way that it's buffeted by waves and high wind um and so it, it he could also be referring to the fact that mescaline maybe was insane maybe he wasn't and was was prone to bouts of both and Thilmer is making a comment about well there's only 24 hours in a day how can you go from one to the other you know i i think there's there's there could be something else to be mined there it, it would come from why he's he's asking that question though i guess it to me i interpreted that question as a dismissal based on well there's nothing there's nothing magical about that island just because it was in the past, just because you're telling us this story and there are all these myths about St. Helena making people go crazy. We know better. What's the mystery? There's 24 hours in a day. Things are the way they are. Can't he just wait it out? And I, so if you, if you look at it that way, and I, I, I see where you're coming from, and, and now I'm trying to think about how Bray's reaction plays into that and it's you know that how interesting makes me wonder if she's if maybe she's heard the story before and she knows what's coming and that's why like you know she's kind of you know maybe you don't know everything kind of a comeback I don't know um Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could, we, we could probably go back and forth on that for a while and, and never really um, hammer down anything specific. But I think that's kind of also part of all of this is that there isn't really a specific way to look at it. Um, but now that's going to be stuck in the back of my head for the rest of the week, probably. The, uh, the idea that she might have heard parts of the story before, that, that's an interesting one. Well, let's um let's let's kind of get the heavy stuff out of the way, I guess, at the beginning and, and talk about the, the darkness that is um that does permeate through these chapters. Um I think kind of the first thing and, and it was already kind of touched on here, uh, Will, with, with what you were when you were kind of describing the island and the madness that comes as a result of it. There was um for me and I I didn't really see anything mentioned in the pension wiki, uh, or on the, the Reddit, I, I went through the, the read through just to see if I could find anything. And, and unless I missed it, um, I didn't really see any references to it, but I, I got a lot of very Lovecraft vibes, um, from specifically those parts of these chapters where they're talking about the Island and, and specifically referring to it as almost an entity and the the kind of terror that that brings with it and how that impacts the people on there um i haven't 
outside of like kind of his major stuff, like, you know, Call of Cthulhu and um, At the Mountains of Madness and a few other of his short stories, I ha- I'm not by any means, you know, very well versed in his work, but I know kind of enough of it to, um, to kind of see those references. Um, I don't know if I'm, if I'm alone in seeing those, but I definitely got those vibes from those descriptions specifically. Yeah, no, I agree with, with that characterization for sure. And I think it's not, excuse me, I think it's not too far of a step to, to reach for the idea that it's described that way very, very purposefully because of the, the horrific history that that island has as far as, you know, the Dutch East India Company, the, um, the usage of slavery that was there, the fact that at one time, like, I think 80% of its inhabitants were slaves as part of the, the colonial project, and everything that we would come to, to see over the next couple chapters, that that much horror existing in a place might become somewhat palpable in the experience of being there or of, of experiencing that island being on it. And, you know, there there are certain places that just give off, for, for lack of an academic term, um, bad vibes or, or something sinister seems to, to lurk within them. And I think that for the reality of what's going on on the island, characterizing it that way is very purposeful on, on Pinchon's part. And, and Lovecraft is a master at doing exactly that with his, with his writing. Yeah. And, and I, th- I, he's definitely using it to, um, to kind of feed the paranoia of, of the people that are on there. Um, there was specifically on, um, on page 128, the first paragraph there, um, where he's talking about, um, it's, it starts with pray you, there is no comment upon the island so unfavorable that I've not heard already from Waddington or uttered myself. Uh, for a while, I firmly believed this a place of a, of a conscious creature animated by power drawn from beneath the earth, assembled in secret by the company, entirely theirs. No action, no thought, nor dream that had not the, com- uh, had not the company for its author. Um, so it's, you know, yeah, it, it's exactly that. It's, it's, you know the the horrors that have taken place on this island as a result of of the the uh, East India Company um, and their control over it is is so intense and so so powerful that it has essentially created this uh, this idea of of the island being alive and and having sentience and and being capable of of producing more evil than already exists. Um, and, and continuing to push that forward all as a result of the, of the power and influence that the company has over all of that. And I think that, you know, again, ties into so much of Pinchon's work, um, but especially, um, uh, Gravity's Rainbow and Against the Day, I think really examine those, um, those ideas through specifically the, that Lovecraftian horror element of, of the, that unknowable, evil and unspeakable horror that doesn't really have to be described necessarily in a physical sense, but more so in just that psychological sense and that, that control and that, that unknown element that makes it so intense and so frightening. Yeah. Especially stepping back from the specific description or, or I suppose the, the location to, to who's describing the location too. You have somebody who, from what we know anyway, wasn't, really involved in what was going on there but this is just what he experienced 
seeing it or or maybe secondhand from other people. So it make it, it makes even more sense from a framing perspective to characterize this place as something, you know, out of time or or out of civility in that it's become so evil that it's it's corrupted the very soil that it sits upon because of what's happening there. I ne didn't necessarily pick up any Lovecraft influence or reference in particular, but I very well could just be missing it. I definitely picked up a generic kind of weird fiction vibe, though. Um, one one thing of note: um, there are certain there, there's a there there's a concept called infrasound, which is basically the idea that there are certain ranges of very low bass tones that seem to conjure certain responses for humans and this is not like some magical thing it's just you know you hear the sound and you subconsciously associate it with something else and places like um i think it's el capitan mountain in california if you're standing alongside it it seems that for a lot of people that infrasound can trigger the infrasound from the combination of wind and waves and uh, geological activity can trigger nausea or a sense of impending doom or other generic kind of implications of horror and with all of the all of the time spent discussing the the layers of sound that are constantly hitting this island it makes me wonder if that isn't something that we're meant to think of because it was circa the late 50s that the idea was actually uh, identified in the artillery field, actually, because it creates nauseating vibrations and it can be used to predict, reading from Wikipedia, predict uh, where munitions are used. I've heard of that before, and I think that's, I think that is one of the theories about how uh animals react to weather events and, and things of that nature where they they get that um sense of uneasiness before something you know like an earthquake or or major storms roll in i if i remember right i haven't looked too much into it but i think that was something that came up with that research and um i hadn't thought about that concept in in relation to this uh this section but that's an interesting connection Especially when compared to something like an artillery field, like if the waves and the wind is mm -hmm. that strong, it wouldn't be too much of a shock to have people just constantly feel like they're under assault by something, and it drives them to these moments of temporary insanity. Um, but yeah, continuing on the the topic of the darkness that that exists on on the island and in, in these chapters, um, you know, obviously there's we, we've touched before on the the issue of slavery and and its its role in the goings on in this book um this is also the first section in which we get mention of the, the black hole of calcutta and um i when i read about it it was one of those things that just kind of fascinated me the uh, just the, the brief mention of it and then where it comes into play later on uh not just in this section but further on in the book um so i i found myself wanting to kind of look into it and it's an absolutely um atrocious thing that happened um but it really was interesting to 
kind of get a better understanding of that and then think about its its importance in this um especially when it comes to the the recreation they have of it in the in the the, the brothel um where you have this um sexualization of this awful event um that i th- i think is it's something that it's not the first time that Pinchon's explored and won't be the last time of this use of, uh, not use of, but this, this fetishization or the sexualization of these, of these awful things. Um, and there was a line in the, um, in one of the chapters, let me, let me find it real quick. Cause I, it really hit about how that, plays into it. Hold on just a second so I can see where that was. Uh, it's around 152, maybe? The end and... Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. At the end of 152 where it says, if one did not wish to suffer horror directly, comments the Reverend in his daybook, one might either transcend it spiritually or eroticize it carnally. Um, and then it kind of goes into more detail um, from there, but I, I thought that was a really apt way of describing that and and kind of the the way that some people react to to trauma and to horrors that you know most of us will never thankfully have to go through and and can barely conceive of um but it's it is a real thing that happens and it's definitely not something that comes up in a lot of other work and so when you see it um in in something like this i think it's i think it can definitely be jarring for some readers uh, there were certainly parts of gravity's rainbow that that touched on the same um kind of topics um but i i definitely think it's it's an important thing to have in there as a sort of uh i guess like a discussion piece if not to have a conversation with others about um about those parts which is just kind of you know taken internally and and think about the the kind of psychology of, of people and how we take those events and why we take those events and, and manipulate them in such a way and why the result is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that that's a big part of Pinchon's recurring themes across his entire work is, is people's, you know, d- different reactions to, to trauma or, or dealing with, with death and tragedy is a big thing that, that he deals with. But I think what's especially heinous about this particular instance of it is these colonists you know engage in this recreation almost as some sort of martyrdom for themselves where they're they're eroticizing it into a into an actual fetish but there's no there's no mention from them in any of the other chapters or in this in these chapters in their relationship to the actual people that it was done to, where they acknowledge that it was something horrifying, where they acknowledge that it was something like truly evil or heinous or whatever descriptor you want to apply to it. There's, this is something that's being done to ignore the reality of what's occurring to these people in both instances. There, there's, there's no actual reality to their engagement in a recreation of it, and they also don't allow themselves to, to accept the reality of what they're doing to other people. They're they're taking it as some sort of form of entertainment um, or, or or fetishization of it. it. It really goes to like we were kind of talking about in in the last episode this idea that 
you know, colonial projects, colonialism, imperialism, it, it destroys both nations that it's being involved in. It destroys the nation that that is being colonized and the people that are there, and it's it completely, you know, wipes out their sense of humanity from a standpoint of, of the colonists themselves. But you also have these after effects that end up getting created to to completely ruin either the mental state or the society that that the the colonists are coming from. Um, and I think that this is a pretty a, a pretty gruesome but necessary inclusion to highlight that. Because it also gets to some historical precedents about, you know, some people, rather than paying attention to the victims, instead highlighting their own, their own suffering or the the own things that they that they do to justify their oppression. Like it wouldn't be too much of a of a stretch to say that the people engaging in this recreation would say, "Well, I went through it, so therefore, you know, uh, it it can't be that bad. I enjoyed it." Um, it really goes to to show the the dehumanized mindset on, on both sides of something like colonialism occurring. Yeah. And it's, it's particularly notable a line in line with many other things in this book and other of Pynchon's works is that it is the, it is the pseudo transcendence of sexuality that's being used to uh, come in Congress with this historical horror and it's being used to, in a sense, it's not, in this case, not necessarily being used by some outside force, by them, but by uh, the people themselves, they are using it as a mechanism of denial in a really direct sense. And it's, you know, that kind of echoes to me back to the, the 60s era of like free love, where love and sex were conflated and all of those things were uh, pretty, pretty clearly um, detrimental to any of the actual social progress that was being made because people just kind of got their rocks off instead of, you know, actually considering the horrors that are around them. They ritualized it with sex and the fact that there's catharsis in the act of sexuality doesn't actually... You know, just because it feels like it, it continues into the, the conceptual, it doesn't mean it does. And not to, I don't want to stay too long on that, on that um, topic because it is a, a depressing one. Um, but it, it's, it's mentioned explicitly that the Vroom Girls um, and, and others, uh, their counterparts all over town, as it's, as it's said in the book, um, are complicit in what's going on in, in the end of the world, which is, um, you know, where, where the black hole, uh, recreation essentially is taking place. Um, I don't think it mentions explicitly that, that the, uh, Dutch East India company is in it, in on it as well, but it certainly seems to be implied if the Vroom girls are in, uh, in cahoots with all of this, that, that obviously the company itself would have, uh, some kind of um, of a sway in in it happening, and and it would make sense, I think, because it's a it's a use it can be used as a means of sort of distracting from you know the the awful things that they're doing. You you provide this deranged entertainment for people to take part in, um, and then they you know you don't have to worry about them anymore because now they're part of it and they're they're you know essentially 
part of the of the the company now because they're taking part in what in what's happening. Yeah, and it, for, furthermore, it you know the 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 black hole was administered by the British East India Company in you know Calcutta. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, these are people in Cape Town in a VOC-run brothel with. Uh, you know, in a society, colonial society, where it's, you know, everything is controlled by the company. Um, so, of course, they're going to make a mockery of the tragedy that comes due to the mismanagement of their direct competitor. Yeah, that's a great point. Let's uh, move on from that. And um, I, so I found something interesting regarding one of the uh, historical mentions that was in here. Um Christopher Smart, who's who's mentioned on page one sixteen, um, and I just I, I was actually looking into this today um, when I was putting my notes together. Um, there's a mention of him in the opening paragraph of chapter twelve, um, where the and which I love that opening paragraph, just the awkwardness of them sitting there, where there it's Mason Dixon and Maskell and. Um, basically just that that strangeness of three people sitting and not knowing what to talk about kind of thing um but they bring up they bring up Christopher Smart and when i looked into him he had a uh i think it was four part writing that he had released called the midwife where he took the uh, the identity of this person named Miss Mary Midnight um and wrote these um these humorous little uh, bits and, and put them out there. And he did that specifically to hide his identity and still release these. And that made me think back to when I think it was in the chapters one through five episode, when we were talking about the Wanda Tanaski um, situation that went down. And I, I couldn't help but wonder if, if the mention of him has a connection to that Wanda Tanaski conspiracy that was uh, occurring around then around the time the book was written, I should say. That's a great spot. Yeah, I would say that that would that would make sense as a as another sort of wink wink to informed readers. Now you have me looking at the etymology of Tenaski. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I wanted to dive more into that, but I like I said, I literally found that today, um, and just didn't have more time to kind of dive into to his biography and and everything he was doing. But what I did read was really kind of fascinating. So I'm I'm curious to go dive into that more and i'm wondering uh now i'm even thinking if if brett uh who's writing the or working on the finishing touches i guess for the uh, mason and dixon companion um if he touches on this so brett if you're if you're listening um let us let us know i'm I'm curious if if you did any uh, research into christopher smart in that uh aspect um Let's let's talk about the the clocks, the the Shelton and, and Ellicott clocks, because I think that was a part of these chapters that we all, unless I'm mistaken, I think we all enjoyed those uh, those moments uh, between them. Um, I wasn't able to find much on the clocks themselves, like the the functionality and and how they worked and and their kind of importance in uh, astronomy. Um, but I did think that in the in the context of the book itself, uh, there I, I kind of wanted to get y'all's opinion on their conversation and the sort of importance of it in the in the story 
and in the narrative because it's almost it almost feels like it's a separate frame narrative from the frame narrative that we're already experiencing and we're getting this new perspective i kind of took it as as each of those clocks sort of being mason and dixon um and they're definitely describing those two the two of them you know separate from our descriptions that we're getting from Pinchon as a writer and from cherry coke as the the storyteller here one thing I found interesting about that section is that it's unclear if the clock's um, time on the various ships that they're on, it's unclear if that has affected um, their uh, accuracy in terms of telling time, um, which I don't know. I mean, the, this, the book doesn't really get into this, I don't think, and... Um, I don't know enough about timekeeping and astronomy to really uh, discourse about this in a very expert way, but it does strike me that stuff with like the the transit of Venus, that uh, the time that all of it is happening would be important and stuff like that. And so if there are um, problems with the way that time is kept and if there are aberrations in the clocks and inaccuracies in the clocks you would think that it would um affect the math of of the whole endeavor pretty seriously again i i didn't i topped out in like algebra 2 i think and then i took like statistics or something i i have i haven't taken calculus or trigonometry uh ever in my life so i have no idea if if what i'm saying is um relevant or not but it did strike me as a possible kind of um problem for people of of this time period you know that they didn't have satellites connected to their phones that were telling them the time down to the millisecond um yeah well that's kind of what i was able to find was that the previous clocks that were used the the problem with them was that the pendulum within which you know obviously would be the mechanism that you know moves the clock forward uh, was essentially uh, taking the the motion of the waves, and so it resulted in inaccurate timekeeping. And then uh, it wasn't it wasn't Ellicott or Shelton that that actually solved the problem. It was a different uh, clockmaker, and I can't think of his name off the top of my head now. I saw it earlier, um, but it was a different person who essentially um, worked out how to fix that. Um, but I was I was kind of curious to get more information about how the these new clocks worked because in my mind you know the the pendulum would still be subject to the motion of the waves so I was curious to learn maybe how that was worked around and yeah math is not my my strong area either and so I you know don't really know how that would impact the. Um, uh, the astronomical measurements that they were taking. If anybody knows, I would love to know more about that. So please let, let us know. Um, but that's, yeah, that's really all I was able to get. Any, any other references I could find when I was searching for Shelton and Ell- Ellicott clocks was, was essentially just like, here's a picture of it. And, you know, it was invented in this year by this person and really nothing more than that. Yeah. I, th- I was Googling that information earlier too john harrison was the the clockmaker who yeah who first um came up with a different design that that was like more impervious to to the issue you're describing with with pendulum clocks to me that not only 
reads as as sort of an increase in this sort of scientific age and that we're getting better better clocks to to lead to to more accurate measurements of not just time but other but other things that time is used for because while you know and and i'm speaking as an amateur completely on the subject while the the stars are in a fixed position in the spot you know relative to to the sky your measurements that you're taking down would be affected i believe by by having a a misaligned clock or a a a non-accurate um timekeeping device not just from a standpoint of when these events are happening, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's something longer going on or, or something deeper going on there if, in, with an issue, like with longitude or latitude. I, like yourselves, I'm not well-versed enough to, to say for sure. But I, I think the other thing that, that Pinchon is, is getting to is there's a lot of talk about history in this book and who gets to write it, who gets to interpret it, all the things we've already talked about. But I think the reasoning for for these inclusions is also time you know where do we get our sense of time from where do we get our sense that that this is when these events occur you know if if the measurements that we're using to to time out these things in relation to one another you know whether it be stars position in the sky or when somebody was at one place or another you know with with clocks that may be horribly misaligned from other states or other countries or continents how do we really know when events occur? How do we really know, you know, who who was there at what time? And getting to the ideas of of colonialism and of telling history, you know, the the timeline of events matters a lot. And I think so. I think there's something else thematically that that Pinchon is getting to there, where, you know, not only is is history difficult to parse out truth from reality, but even trying to determine when these things happened uh, with something as simple as hour or day could have been wildly different simply because the the methodology for keeping accurate time simply wasn't there or wasn't widely spread enough in industrialized making of of timekeeping devices to actually keep an accurate record of yeah i i completely agree there's a there's a kind of there's a there's a i don't know if idiom the right word is like a, it's like a cultural anecdote of you know people not caring about what time it was until there were rail railways um and uh, we see on page 156 talking about how it's becoming popular in holland and in the cape for people to purchase two-handed clocks instead of simply a single-handed clock so that they can measure their time more discreetly and it it does it is discussed as the the increased incrementalization of the time changes the way people feel about time's passage and with, with regard to the idea of uh, of these normal pendulum clocks being used on being taken on board ships basically to synchronize the same way the other one was with the waves um it, it it reminds me a lot of the perennial theme in pension's work of um the the failure points of science how there are no matter how good we get at measuring things no matter how you know we we 
you know, went from having sundials, went from looking at the sky to having sundials. And with sundials and looking at the sky, we created astronomy. And then we had to kind of figure out, okay, what, but what is, what is the time here and there? And all of these things were narrowed down more and more and more. And still, if you put these clocks on a boat, it completely screws up their ability to keep time. And it pretty much reduces the use of that pretense of objective time to 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 mootness. One thing I found interesting about the the invention of uh, the second hand of the clock is that it's um, immediately used, at least in Cape Town, to uh, write down the times of uh, when questions are answered and asked and answered uh in the uh fort of the city of cape town as it relates to like people being interrogated and perhaps tortured which i do think speaks to a common pension um theme of um technology being created and immediately kind of used um in a evil way um you know, in, in Gravity's Rainbow, the, the the rockets are, you know, what what will eventually be used to take humanity to the moon, to create satellites, um, you know, to do stuff that actually is kind of helps mankind was initially used just to create terror uh, in England and stuff. Um, that's kind of the, the example in this example in Mason and Dixon is, is a milder example of that especially due to the fact that it's stated that, you know, the, the timekeeping of, of these questions was more or less pointless. Um, but it, it does speak to a, a typical pension theme of, yeah, like I said, uh, technology being used uh, almost immediately to for evil purposes. Yeah, I definitely got that, that impression as well. Um, and that's... Um... I think it also ties the the second keeping as far as interrogations and all that. I think it also tie into the, the kind of paranoia uh, when you know when the the people in power can control the essentially control the time uh, in that kind of a manner. Um, it really puts you know the, the people who are under that control um, in in more of a state of panic and concern. Um, you know, it's just it's really a frightening kind of flex and especially at that kind of at that time when when that was still a new thing um that had to absolutely be uh, a terrifying idea that they would you know now they can control the, the the literal time that things are happening which really does underpin bonk's flight from the voc where he mentions just how the the company has you know gotten its tendrils into literally everything that he just wants to get away from it. They they control everything now, and so he's he's gonna go to the other side of the island and try and kind of separate himself from it as much as he can. Yeah, and that so that okay that brings up. I'm glad you mentioned Bonk because I and I I could just be uh, alone in this idea, but I could not help but think about J Edgar Hoover um, when when we get reintroduced to bonk and he's uh wearing a dress a, a dressing gown of red velvet um and there was that long-running idea that j edgar hoover was was a cross-dresser i don't i think that was debunked at some point um 
I may be wrong, but I, the idea that he was that he was doing that was was definitely a prevalent one uh, for a long time. Um, and then you know also the the mentions to surveillance. Obviously, Hoover never gave up doing what he was doing, but he definitely was heavily involved in in the surveillance of many many people over the time that he was working uh, with the FBI. So I I just immediately got those vibes from that description of him. Yeah, I don't I don't know about J. Edgar Hoover, although that the the red velvet dressing gown, I think yeah, that has to be regard that has to be related to Hoover. Um but it it is one hundred percent in my mind a, a foreshadowing to the idea of manifest destiny in America as essentially the the colonies revolt because they felt like they were being controlled too much by the UK, and so they decided to become their own country, and then people said, hey, how dare you tell me not to drink rum? You know, I'm going to go out into the frontier and live where you can't tell me what to do. And that ends up being repackaged as its own motivation for the colonial project. I hadn't thought about that, but that that's interesting. And, and, yeah, and then it's it's you know the, the ties ideologically, like metaphorically, um, to the, the ideological constriction of people like J. Edgar Hoover during the times of the Cold War. Yeah, which does make a lot of sense given that one of his complaints is that he feels constrained by the company's overreach. There's also there's there's some references in these chapters to um, destiny and fate and and. The, the kind of paranoia that has been tied into those things, as far as especially with like Mason and Dixon's feeling like they are or have been put in the positions and places that they've been um, by forces beyond their control. Uh, it comes up again in um, when when uh, Mason's having his his star chart done. Um, you know, they mentioned the fact that, uh, it's kind of interesting that him and Dixon got paired together and, um, it's kind of implied that maybe the, the East India company may have had something to do with that. Um, did y'all pick up on, on those kind of mentions as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing that's interesting in that, in the context of the, the star chart reading too, is you have these two men who are ostensibly religious and who would potentially 10 years ago 20 years ago or or maybe not even that long ago would have looked to the church for guidance in things in things like this where they're trying to figure out if they have a destiny or if there's people they need to be around but instead in this age of sort of emerging science and you have these two men who are particularly known for being men of science they're instead looking for something that while it is not scientific it has its basis in science from a standpoint of charting out where the stars are to directly replace something of religion. We've we've talked a lot about the dichotomy between whether it's a, a deistic force that's pushing these men together or if it's the manipulation of something else or if it's, you know, just random. And I think this scene in particular is a great encapsulation of those ideas. Um, and then another section that I, I was really kind of fascinated by um, is, again, in, in chapter 13, was 
uh, Mason's recollection of the letters that he used to go through um, when he was, uh, I can't remember who it was he was working for, Dr. Bradley, I think. Um, and, and the letters he would get, and especially with reference to uh, the, was it the Longitude Act of 1714? Uh, and then you, would ha- he had these this essential like influx of of these conspiracy theories and and uh, what he referred to as uh, paragiography, um, which I thought was a really interesting. Uh, I I just loved reading that very long paragraph where he described all those letters. But it also it it really, and I, I've mentioned this so many times before on this uh, as we've been going through this book. But the the ties to against the day that are in here and it, you know again, because it's being written concurrently are probably likely to have happened, but I think also it shares those, a lot of thematic concepts as well. But, um, that paragiography, you know, made me think of the, the hollow earth that the chums of chance end up going into, um, and against the day. Um, I know that chapter 13 wasn't the, everyone's favorite, but I, I was curious to get y'all's, uh, impression of, of that, uh, that, little section of it where he's reading uh, through all those, or recalling reading through all those letters. To to me, it just, it, not just, but it reads as a continuation of the broader themes where we're, the, the whole book is an examination of what, what could have been and what we have decided to, to make of the world. And how those those decisions on how we perceive it are as important as the the actions we take based on the perceptions. Also, uh, others told of rapture by creatures not precisely angels, nor yet demon-styled agents of altitude, which you know, chums of chance, agents of altitude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was interesting that um, it, and this kind of goes back to the astrology thing, that um, Mason has so many ties to um, pseudoscience and, and as, you know, astrology being one of them, but then some of the things that were mentioned in those letters uh, were another, but then also with his, um, the struggles that he goes through regarding uh, his, interactions with Rebecca's um, ghost or, or specter or whatever you want to refer to it as. Um, I found those parts really, really interesting because Mason is this, you know, through and through scientist who in spite of, of, of that. And I, I actually, I have some close friends that are, that are both scientists. And, and so I, I see the, um, the kind of passion that comes over them when they talk about, pseudoscience things and, and pseudoscientific things, um, and, and they're debunking of them. And I've always been fascinated by science. Um, and so to know how, you know, how passionate people are, scientists, how passionate they are specifically about their subject. Um, but that, that, you know, when it really, when you boil it all down, they're still human and they're still subject to those human emotions. And for someone like Mason, who is, you know, so deeply entrenched in science and so in, in love with science, he still struggles with this idea of letting go of his wife to the point that he's willing to believe that he's seeing a ghost that he knows isn't real. Um, but 
he, I think, wants it to be so badly that he's almost willing to give up the the knowledge that it's it's not real just to have it stay in his life. Yeah, and it's it's moments like that. You know, I think I think you've summed up the dichotomy within Mason really well. But it's moments like that that I think get to the the warmth that all of us t- talked about when we first introduced this book, where that scene where he gets to talk to his wife is very I hesitate to use the word tragic, but you can tell there's a lot of tragedy in the way Mason is responding to it and that he he misses this woman so much. He loved this woman so much that he is willing to forego everything that he believes in, that he's made his his life out of to gain just a, a few more moments with her or or to stay up there to, to be with her for as long as it lasts. It, it It's a moment of really genuine sincerity and love that people who have, who have, you know, been married or, or been in very committed relationships or been in love with somebody who, and, and maybe in their case, the person didn't die, but something did occur that, that ended that relationship. That's very true to life where you are willing to do whatever it is that you can to get that person back and to experience what it is that that you felt at one time again um it really does get to to the warmth and the, the humanity that really coats this entire book and a lot of how mason struggles with moving on past the death of his wife is is a big part of what lends that to the text yeah and you can you really see that in, in when he kind of comes to when when he's approached by dixon um and he kind of opens up to him and you know, it's, I, I think it really speaks a lot to that, uh, that having that, that person in your life who can be there for you in, in a, in a really trying time, uh, especially when you lose someone as close to you as, as Mason did. And I love what he says to Dixon, uh, on page 165 when he says, um, damn, she was here. Was it not her soul? What then? Memory is not so all in wrapping. Dream sooner or later betrays itself. If an actor or a painted portrait may represent a personage no longer alive, might there not be other modalities of appearance as well? No, nothing of reason in it. In truth, I have ever waited um, meeting her again, nodding as if, as if to confirm it. So, you know, it. I, I can't imagine having that that struggle that he's going through, and I, you know, I would hope I never have to. But it's, you know, as you mentioned, Kate, it's that that warmth that exists throughout this book where he has Dixon now to, you know, kind of get all of this out to and, and to have that person there to, if nothing else, just listen and let him work through the grief that he's been going through. Absolutely. I, I don't think it's any any surprise at all that that Dixon is the first person that he imagines when he's trying to figure out how to process what's what's happened. It really says a lot about where their relationship is at at this point in the book. I, I hadn't caught on this, on any reading, the the modalities of appearance, which is the, you know, I, it's interesting, the Pynchon Wiki misses it. This is a, a rephrasing of the ineluctable modality of the visible, which is a, like a Calvinist idea. Interesting. Like Catholic. It's, it's talked a lot about in Ulysses, and so if you look it up, it's all going to be Ulysses. It's just the idea that, you know, we don't have any option but to believe what we can see because all other ways of knowing are as or more malleable. So we just have to accept what we can see. 
And with that in mind, I, I don't know, I'm going to beg to differ. I think that within the bounds of the story, uh, Rebecca, Rebecca's ghost did appear to him. I don't, I don't think that it's a hallucination. I don't think it's, I think it's something about St. Helena has conjured her. And that, I mean, that's entirely possible. You know, we are not there. We're, we're getting the story, um, third hand essentially. Um, so yeah, we don't, you know, and so Mason's experience absolutely could be, um, genuine and he could have, he could have seen that. And maybe he's talked himself out of seeing what, what was real and, and in, in being overly scientific is, is letting go of that. But, um, either way you, you look at it, I think it's a, that, that whole section is just absolutely beautiful and, and contains, uh, some of my favorite, uh, parts, just paragraphs, uh, in the book. I do think it's interesting that he hears her voice um, while I think he's on the, the more windy side of the island, um, which implies to me that he might be um, like, you know, um, like he's hearing so much wind in his ears just to maybe push back on what Will said a little bit. Because I interpreted it as perhaps him um, finding finding words in the wind or the wind somehow... Uh, forming language or something. Um, I don't know. I do think it's interesting that he's he's at a um, he's he's inundated by wind whenever he hears her voice. I mean, you could we could tie it back to to lot forty nine and and the idea of you know interpretation and and how uh, signs and symbols are interpreted differently by the individual and that's experiencing them. So it's you know Mason's uh, interaction is is entirely composed of of all of the sensory input that he's getting and his you know the way he's uh, deciphering all of that and you know whether it's true or not is I think said it really lies on each individual reader um, and I think that's the beauty of of this kind of work is that it allows for that subjectivity um, but speaking of the the, the warmth um, that's in this book I. I kind of want to bookend the this episode with you know we started with the the darkness that's in it but I also want to kind of go over the the warmth in it um the the first and last paragraphs of page 146 the opening of chapter 14 um of of Mason just taking time to wonder about what Dixon is up to um really just put a smile on my face uh, when I was reading that, I, I, it was so heartwarming and just that moment of just, you know, he's thinking about Dixon and, and, you know, wondering if he's got ketchup and if he's putting ketchup and everything. And those little kind of subtle touches in, in a book like this are just so wonderful. This is uh this is a little random, but I think in that, in the, in the last paragraph of 146, it mentions fricadel, which is a type of sausage yeah. that I, I actually believe I've, I've eaten in, uh, in Africa. That's cool. Also, I did I did kind of a deep dive into ketchup, and I think the ketchup of this time period was made out of mushrooms and would have been green. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Probably a lot more like fish sauce or something, poison. Well, it was Asian in origin, so yeah, it probably had uh, a completely different uh, composition than what we're, what we're used to. Yeah, because I think tomato ketchup came about in the 1800s. Like, it would have been about 30, 40, 50 years after the events of this book. So I wonder if there's a, if there's a current 
sort of uh, ketchup that is more like what it was in this book. I'd be curious to see if that exists and try it. Jumping back to your your, your mention of the of Mason's uh, thinking of Dixon. I think it's interesting how the beginning of chapter 13, or well, kind of like the middle of it, uh, Maskeline's really, you know, trying to say, or no, it's, sorry, it's like a 12 or something when they're talking in the, when Mason and Dixon are talking to him in the pub, they're, uh, he, he's saying, do I sense a distrust between the two of you? And they're, they're both, you know, Clearly, they have a bond with each other, but they're happy to kind of dunk on one another and, <laughs> and make it clear that, you know, yes, we're friends. That's all. We're partners. We've worked together. Um, and then for the end of, uh, conveniently, the, the reading we chose for this episode, it took the last two chapters to feature the, you know, Mason thinking about Dixon on the Cape, followed by the... Um, Oh, Dixon, I'm afraid line really drive home exactly how much, at least to Mason, Dixon means, and presumably vice versa. Yeah. Uh, although there wasn't, uh, I wouldn't, I would say there wasn't as much humor in these chapters. I, there definitely still was. Um, and so I kind of wanted to get y'all's, uh, uh, I guess, parts of these chapters that you found um humorous i i think for me the uh the idea of of being at a restaurant and having people sing at you and i use the word at intentionally because it's it's not they're not singing to you they don't no one wants that to happen but it's happening um and it's definitely one of the most uncomfortable experiences <laughs> that i think anybody ever goes through it's never fun uh but it's always funny to watch it happen to someone else and just watch them sit in their discomfort pension strikes me as the type of person that would really hate that type of attention. Yes, but he also strikes me as a person who would intentionally bring it to the restaurant's attention to have them go sing to someone that maybe he doesn't particularly care for, just as a way of kind of undercutting them a little bit. Yeah. Well, especially given that the instance that this happens in is, it's a birthday cake too. So it's, yeah. it's literally the same reason why it happens in modern times. Um, I think for me, the, the funniest parts are, are certainly a lot of Dixon's dialogue, you know, his his inclusion at the end of chapter 11, like I mentioned earlier, definitely, definitely sent me into a, a fit of laughter, but also the way that he specifically kept trying to prod uh, masculine during their conversation in the bar and the fact that he was doing it to get a rise out of Mason um, to the point where Pinchon goes so far as to describe Mason letting out a sigh of frustration and hitting his head against the table because Dixon <laughs> is talking about the fact that he's going to ask Maskelin about his <laughs> instruments, which is apparently a topic that's going to send him spiraling for a while. Um, so that a lot of his, his inclusions in these, in these uh, chapters is, is what made me laugh the most. I think for me, outside of the, uh, you know, like the, the discussions of, Mass or the, the conversations between masculine and Mason. Uh, the top two points have to be the top two humorous points of these chapters have to be right at the end of chapter 15, not at the end really, but the, the towards the middle of chapter 15, where um, where 
Mason is considering just killing Masculine. He's like, dear God, this guy is crazy. He's <laughs> yeah. annoying, and he demands my constant attention. How can I get rid of this horrible situation? And he just eventually gets over it. But the way he gets over it is by imagining all of the ways which he could possibly be rewarded by Clive of India for saving <laughs> his brother-in-law. And it's the, it's this super dry, like, page-length excerpt so i'm not going to read any of it but it is just deeply hilarious because yeah no one likes this guy no one really cares if he lives or dies and you know he ends up being the astronomer royal later on in real life mm -hmm. and you know publishes the method of discerning latitudes while at sea but also at that point in time who cares just kill him he's a horrible person <laughs> you can't even imagine his family being sad to see him gone if he just happened to slip and fall into the sea um, and then the the prior chapter when Dixon just rushes um, Cornelius from it's just hilarious to me. Oh yeah, because you know you have this patriarch of a big family who's big strong man in charge of a bunch of slaves whipping them day in day out, and then you know this just like somewhat tall Quaker starts running at him and he just drops his gun and it's like, ah, this isn't how it's supposed to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the other part that I was thinking of as far as what really made me laugh out loud was uh, on, on page 136, um, there's, the, there's a brief line where he says, um, uh, it says, Kepler said that astrology is astronomy's wanton little sister who goes out and sells herself, that astronomy may keep her virtue. Um, and then Masculine has that uh, song that he sings, which I, I, the song itself is hilarious. Um, but then right after that, he, he says, uh, we've got a little while before Sirius, Masculine flushed with song. What do you say? I do yours now and you do mine later. What? Mason begins to edge toward the tent opening. <laughs> Just that, <laughs> that idea that like, Mason has no idea what could possibly be on his mind, but it's certainly he doesn't think it has anything to do with astronomy or stars or anything like that. And he's just absolutely so nervous he has to get out. It just that killed me. Well, the you know the 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 juxtaposition of I'll do yours and you do mine, followed by tent opening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I already kind of talked about it, but all the discussions of. Um... Like, you know, whether or not the, the guy who gets hung, um, you know, if he oh, gets yeah. a boner or not, yeah. and like in it, that relating to the, the, the person who's being hung, supposed innocence or not, um, it did strike me as a very, like, of its time period thing to be talking about and, like, a theory to have. Um, and it's a nice mixture of, you know, like, I don't, I personally, like, I, I struggle with, with, and I know that this is a thing with um, just in general of the time period that uh, um, that hangings were like a social gathering where everyone would show up. And I have seen I think that there are pictures even from like the 1940s or 1950s, even I think in America, people showing up to uh, public executions and crowding around. But I just can't imagine you know, like going to your friend's house and being like, hey, man, do you want to go see, you know, somebody get hung? You know, it just right. it strikes me as a very odd way to spend one's time. Um, 
it, well, it's, that, it seems kind of an- anathema to people like to, to for like a from a modern viewpoint that particular scene too i looked up the um what was it terry whatever the name of the city was that was a traveling gallows at one point um which i had no idea of but they basically um i think it was after that particular uh person was was hung the the gallows that they used to hang him became a traveling uh exhibition essentially that they would you know go from town to town and and hang whoever needed hanging and then move on to the next town um so i i meant to go over that earlier and i just absolutely forgot but yeah look it up cuz it was bizarrely fascinating and and darkly you know like you said that 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 used to be a form of entertainment is is absolutely mind blowing it is yeah it's pretty insane if you are interested enough to listen to like a five hour podcast on it. Dan Carlin has an episode of hardcore history where he traces the history of that development. Oh. Um, yeah. He begins with the last public execution in England, I believe. And he describes all of the different, you know, kind of people who would come with like picnic lunches and, oh my God. you know, um, they would make an actual like day out of it. It was a thing that you went to go do. And he, he, over the course of the the whole episode traces how that developed and how public execution as a practice became so widely attended. That's wild. Yeah, I, I particularly enjoy the the note of the the textiles that have just been that have just come into fashion for attending such gatherings with a thirteen turn noose pattern. Like that's. It's a, it's a good way to bring some levity into a, a truly monstrous part of human history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and uh, do quotes. Um, who, who wants to, to go for it? Will, do you want to go first? No. <laughs> <laughs> I can, Wait, someone I can someone might snipe yours. Um, I, I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mine, mine is from page 155. Uh, when Dixon returns to the the Vroom residence, where it says, What enchanted Mason about these girls, Dixon comes to realize with some consternation, is their readiness to seek the shadow, avoid the light, believe in what haunts these shores exactly to the atom, ghosts everywhere, slaves, hottentots driven into exile, animals remorselessly savage, a reservoir of sin whose weight, like that of the atmosphere, is borne day after day unnoticed averted to only when some vacuum is encountered, a stranger in town, a malay publicly distraught, an hour at the lodge, into which its contents might rush with a turbulence felt and wondered at by all. The Vroom girls and their counterparts all over town are daughters of the end of the world, smiling more than they ought, chirping when needful, alert to each instant of the long day as likely as next to hold a chance of ruin. In their dreams, they ever return to prisons of stone, to gates with seals, tis death to break, the odor of soap and slops, the stillness of certain corridors, the unchallengeable love of a tyrant, yellow light from unseen watchfires flickering upon the wall, and unexpectedly rounding a particular corner to the tall clock from home ringing the quarter hour. I think that that selection of a quote encompasses so much about not just this section that we read, but also some of the details and sections prior, 
where a it's it's nice to see that Dixon is thinking about Mason in the same way that Mason is kind of thinking about Dixon, where he's he's on his mind constantly. He's trying to understand his friend and why he has the positions that he has. But it's this realization that the fascination comes from this sort of spirit realm or this this belief in something inherently unscientific that if he can understand that if he can you know seek out these dark places just like they do maybe he can get closer to his his wife and and find a way to to either understand her her passing or, or bring her back as we've seen her actually come back at the end of this this section as a ghost or as a as a literal you know temporary resurrection and so it's a great underpinning for that but it also gets to this idea of again the the colonists getting just as ravaged by what they're doing as the the colonized where you have these young girls of varying ages but they are running to these dark places they're returning to cages in their sleep it's 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 such a clever encapsulation of how their mindset their psychology is changing and then like we had just talked about with with clocks being used to determine periods of torture or or the company now has the ability to set down what time it is he ends this whole section describing these these ways in which the darkness of of their reality the ghosts of the island and all of that have so thoroughly penetrated that mindset by by literally bringing it back to the control of time and the placement of time in the house and how they they return home at the beck and call of time um i thought it was it was it was an excellent quote for for numerous reasons i love that one yeah i will say kate that was that was one of my options (laughs) (laughs) the trend continues yep as it should be (laughs) (laughs) i'll do mine real quick mine's mine's somewhat short um and it's uh on page 164 um this goes back to him to mason trying to rationalize um rebecca's specter and and what he's experiencing um but it's just the par- this paragraph that starts he tries to joke with himself isn't this supposed to be the age of reason to believe in the cold light of all the of this all business world that rebecca haunts him is to slip to stagger in a crowd into the embrace of the painted indian whore herself and the air to fill with suffocating incense and the radiant deity to go dim forever but if reason be also permission at last to believe in the evidence of our earthly senses, then how can he not concede to her some resurrection to deny her? How cruel. Uh, and we, we already kind of went over, I think, the, the importance of, of what Mason's going through. But I found that passage just, you know, so deeply emotionally powerful. Just the, the, the conflict that's within him that he's lost someone he cares so deeply about and so badly wants to have her back in his life but he he knows that uh or at least you know the in in thinking about it as a scientist he knows that that can't be what it is but emotionally and and spiritually he can't separate that and that that struggle um is just so powerful and uh, it really just uh, I I think I connected more with Mason uh, than I have it, you know, the the last hundred or so pages that we've gone through. Um, just as as someone who really I am, I am passionate about science, and at the same time, I know that if I were to lose someone as important to me um, as Rebecca was to him, I, you know, if, if I lost my wife, 
um, yeah, I would, I would have the same conflict. Like you, you, just the idea that you would do anything to have that person back in, in whatever form it may be. And to think that, you know, if they could be there as a, as a manifestation spiritually that, you know, you could have those moments with them, but then to know that it's not real and, and to have to grapple with that at the same time that you're dealing with the, the, the pain of the loss is just, I, it's almost impossible to imagine going through that and, and being able to still go on. Um, but then, you know, he has Dixon to, to help him through all of that. So. Yeah. Please stop making me tear up. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just such a touching moment. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. That moment made me cry for sure. Yeah. I, I like that moment as well. I think the other interesting thing about that, that is only just now occurring to me. So forgive the, the, the temporary sidetrack is that he, he keeps searching for ways to reconnect with his wife within the bounds of the civilization that his science is supporting in some way or another. He, he talks to a fortune teller when they're back in England. Um, he taught, he, he, he's searching out these dark places on these islands in the, the, the places being supported by the colonial project that he is in some ways a beneficiary of and his science is supporting. But it isn't until he literally goes to the other side of the island, separate from where modern society has its sort of fingers in, you know, the, the same place that this that this officer is going to run away to in order to get away from it all, that he actually is able to to connect with her. So it's almost as if, and I could be completely grasping at straws, but it's almost as if there's a suggestion that searching for her within the world that he has helped support is not going to work. And it's going to require a deliberate choice to eschew that and look for something else, which could support a deistic interpretation or, or a religious one, but um, certainly something that is that is separate from the the places he is continuing to search from, which are are a part of this this modern scientific age or this period of modernity. Yeah, we'll have to keep a conscious track on that because it. it I mean, if if that's a if that was an intended reading. You know, it'll definitely pop up later. Um, so my favorite quote was probably uh, Bonk talking about moving north uh, out of the reach of the company who desire total control over every moment of every life here. I could not for them longer work. The mountains beckon the vast hot and taut land beyond. I do think hot and taut is a, is a racial epithet, so I apologize to anyone offended by that. Um I know that the the K word, which I'm not going to say because it's basically the N word, is in this book a little bit. But anyway, and at last, you know, a curious thing happened. The more the company exerted itself, searches in the middle of the night, property impounded, the more farmers up country felt pressed to move north, away from the castle. Uh, partially, I like that quote mostly because I I can visualize uh, the the terrain north of South Africa, um, which is where I have a lot of experience with hanging out. Um, and I just like that, I don't know, the Bonk is kind of portrayed as somewhat sinister in the in the section from I think last week. Um, you know, he's he he uh the whole thing about him saying that there's a there's an office in London that will know of him and everything, it just kind of it 
I, it to me kind of implied that Mason and Dixon had been under surveillance for longer than they maybe suspect. Um, but I just like the whole thing of him kind of, you know, getting mad at the Dutch East India company and, and wanting to move out on his own. Um, it just, I don't know. I, I just, I like that part. But yeah, it's interesting to have kind of a return to a character who almost feels like a stock fill-in in his first few appearances in the novel mm-hmm. to have him fleshed out more. Yeah. All right, well, what do you what do you got? Did we how many of yours did we steal? Uh, well, actually the K- Kate's was the only one that came close <laughs> this time. <laughs> but uh I'm actually going to go a little bit out of my normal criteria for for choosing my favorite quote because uh you know who cares about theme or anything um i and you know i'm often kind of the when it comes to the the songs i'm often you know i'm the one in five doctors one in five dentists who doesn't recommend pensions songs (laughs) um so i'll make it up to the world by choosing um at the the end of 143 to about halfway through 144. Um, The absence of further children after Miss Bradley was a secret text denied to Mason. He seethed with it, a beast in lean times, prowling for signs, turned by any scent however contradictory, or to a beast unbeastly. She was back in Chalford. Had she ever slept with Bradley again? Did she have Bradley on her name but Mason on her mind? Did she dream of Mason now as he'd once dreamt of her? Was that oinking upon the rooftop? Their trajectories never, Mason thought with dismay, even to cross, though he'd have settled for that, one passionate hour, one only, then estrangement eternal, so crazed had he been after Susanna Peach. I was only sixteen upon your wedding day, I stood outside the churchyard and cried, and now I'm working for the man who carried you away, and every day I see you by his side. Sometimes you're smiling, sometimes you ain't, most times you never look my way. I'm still as a mill pond, I'm ancient as a saint, wondering if there's things you'd like to say. Oh, are you daydreaming of me? Do you tuck me in at night when he's fast asleep beside you? Are those fingers doing right? How can love conquer all when love can be so blind and you've got Bradley on your name and Mason on your mind? It's just a just a really nice little... Uh, the, the, the introductory paragraph just blends perfectly into the song and i love the way that that happens and the actual song you know i would actually listen to that song you know it's 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 very still like 60s love song vibes but i would i like it so much compared to most of his stuff yeah no i agree i so i'm actually also one of the one in five dentists who who do not recommend trident gum um in relation to 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 pinch on song lyrics i you know, I, I think some of them are, are interesting, I, but largely I kind of feel the same way that I do about them as I do with all the inclusions of, of poems or songs in, in Tolkien's work, where I just kind of like, okay, this is here now, I, let's go through it. But that is definitely one that stands out as being, it, it, it almost reads like a like a sonnet or a poem as opposed to, to like a pop song or, or you know, like a, like a dirge. And you're right, like the, the imagery of it is is very romantically poetic in a way that that I, I really enjoyed. So I agree. That is one another one that stands out to me. 
Yeah, I almost chose that one as well. And then I did make the same connection that the the song lyrics do um uh remind me of of like 60s uh like pop music. Uh and I do kind of that that section does seem to be uh related to possibly related to some stuff I talked about in our Crying of Lot 49 episodes. Uh where Pynchon um does kind of have a tendency Y'all also talked about in relation to Mason and Rebecca, uh, but Ma- Pynchon does have a tendency to kind of um, focus on and emphasize like lost love, um, you know, like what if scenarios, um, you know, examples of of love gone wrong and different stuff like that. He's more romantically minded than I think people give him credit for, and uh, I really love that quote as well. And I will, Kate. I'm I'm with you. I love Tolkien. Um, sometimes the the songs and the poems can be very effective, and sometimes not as effective. Um, so, and it's kind of the same. I think with Benchon. I think when he when he is on, the songs are are wonderful, and they add a lot to the to the story. Um, but there are certainly some that I could, I think, could have been removed and would not really impact much at all. This is not one of them. This is, I love this one. Um, so let's, before we get into the end uh, here, let's um, talk about everyone's most pinch on part of these chapters. Um, I think for me, it was the, the clocks and their, their conversation. Um, it's, it's a short section, but I think it's, it's so um, just kind of, indicative of what Pinchon does so well um, in inserting this almost separate story into the story and, and making it fit and making it feel uh, like it, it's just a part of the narrative and flows perfectly and adds um, a totally interesting perspective on, on the story and the characters uh, up to that point. I think my most pension part of the chapter, which I've already kind of talked about a little bit in the um, opening of this episode, is the uh, is the is the fact that the black hole of Calcutta was um, on a list of like a, a menu of uh, sex acts in the um, seraglio or uh, um, brothel. Uh, as I talked about uh in relation to gravity's rainbow it does seem to be a very pinchant thing to do to kind of fetishize suffering um and to kind of uh get into kind of the more lurid and uh harder to talk about aspects of human sexuality um it does seem that part i did kind of relate back to the whole um the gallows being related to like you need gallows in order to have slavery and different stuff like that where um you know there's there's probably a lot of i would imagine i mean from even from being in cape town in the 21st century there's a lot of racial tension uh in in the country and in the city and i i imagine that whenever the the african the 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 black africans were literally enslaved at the time that those racial tensions were probably much higher um and also, I mean, one thing that I I think is kind of in the subtext of of the Cape Town sections is the fact that you know it's it's a small white settlement in a in a vast uh, you know in a, in a, in an 
that doesn't take up much area and that you know is, is going to be surrounded by African tribes. Um, you know, they they're heavily heavily outnumbered in a way that even people in the south of uh, the American the American the country of America at this time would would uh, would you know like. I mean, black people outnumbered white people in the in the South of America at this time, but it would have been even a much a much more uh, dangerous situation in Cape Town at the time. Um, and I don't know, just kind of it, like it seems to be kind of you know like it's like a weird little like um, like it's like a theme park ride, but based on uh, one of the most horrific uh, instances of of mass torture that I can think of. Um, and it's just, I don't, I can't think of any other author that would have the balls to fetishize and sexualize the black hole of Calcutta. So, um, it's just, that's probably my favorite, not my favorite, but the, the most pension part of the chapter for me because of those reasons. Uh, I think for me, the most pension part of the chapter would come from page 135. It's one of the like sort of Lovecraftian instances coming up or, or these, these allusions to, you know, deities or, or dragons or demons or serpents or whatever where <clears throat> excuse me um it says serpent worm or dragon tis all the same to it for it spaketh no tongue but its own it rules this island whose ancient curse and secret name is disobedience in thoughtless greed within a few pitiably brief generations have these people devastated a garden in which once anything might grow their muck heaps everywhere Disease, madness, one day not far distant, with the last leaf of the old father never died, bush destroyed, was the unremitting wind carries off the last soul, soil from the last barren meadow, with naught but other humans, the only life remaining, then to the island. How will they take their own last step? How disobey themselves into oblivion? Simply die one by one, alone in suspicion, as the style is of this place, till all are done? Or will they rather choose to murder one another for the joy to be had in that? I think that it, it's it's this melding of near religious imagery in this idea of a serpent who has a has a moral aspect of of disobedience influencing and also being fed by humanity coming in and just you know paving a paradise. It's brought up in Law 49, it's brought up in Vineland, it's brought in, up in Inherent Vice. You know, so that, that aspect of, of deforestation and destruction is certainly there, but also the idea of, of human beings just coming into a place and inherently turning something about it evil through the machinations of technology or advancement and progress is, I think, very, very Pinchonian and, and comes up a lot in his work. And the melding of it with more spiritual imagery in particular feels relevant. Yeah, well, you you did kind of steal the most pension part, but on, only kind of. I, I was going to choose the the section that ends there, but begins on the prior page for the, the for if each star is little more than more a mathematical point located upon the hemisphere of heaven by right ascension and declination, then all the stars taken together, though innumerable, must like any other set of points in turn represent some gigantic equation. To the mind of God as straightforward as, say, the equation of a sphere. To us, unreadable, incalculable. A lonely, uncompensated, perhaps even impossible task, yet some of us must ever be seeking, I suppose. And it, you know, it's not... It's not one of those sections that, like, only Pinchon could have written it. But what it is, is it's 
only Pynchon would have put that in the middle of a book about friendship. Like, only Pynchon would decide to just have an incredibly concise summary of basically... I mean, it's, it's very opaque, you know, it's strictly speaking, it's about astrology, but mysticism in general, ha- having such a concise, tight little bundle that just gets it out of the, out of the way. Here's why, look, I, I know this is crazy, but it just makes sense, okay? It's, uh, it, it takes a certain attitude to do that, and I don't think that it would be incredibly surprising to find that same sort of passage in a modern or in a, in a novel that's more contemporaneous to us today. Um, thinking of like "Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead" by Olga Tokarczuk would have something like that. But it in the late '90s, when like enlightened atheism was king in terms of you know. Uh, academia and people who read big postmodern books it's really cool to have such a such a i mean and it, you know it's coming from masculine who we're not supposed to be 100 percent sympathetic with but it is a demonstration of that sincere devotion to traditional ways of knowing that i think only someone like pynchon would do at that point in time and it's just phrased really well it is. I had that as as one of my quotes because um, I I absolutely loved it, and you summed it up perfectly. We got a couple of comments that um, I wanted to go over. Um, so I will have uh, if Will, if you would uh, wouldn't mind reading the first one. Sure, absolutely. So we got an email titled "M and D Thought" from Kurt. Kurt said. Enjoying the podcast. I'm actually reading M&D right now, and I'm almost done, and the podcast has been perfect timing. Really cool to hear discussion about the book as I reflect on it near the end. Anyway, my, dear, my dumb comment is, I love how Dixon's speech is always ending with dot 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 question mark. He's such a likable sort of incredulous guy with a ton of levity, and for some reason that little detail just endears him to me and makes it feel like we're in on a joke together. Heart. And uh, Kurt, you know, I completely agree. I think that that's one of the the best parts of this book is the way that Dixon is. He's always the kindest person in in any scene, but he's never the serious one. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And then, uh, Kate, if you would read the other email that we got. Yeah, absolutely. So we got a, another email from uh, Brett, the the aforementioned individual who's writing a a commentary for Mason and Dixon. And he says, loved this one, and thanks for the shout out. You're right on about the companion, it's coming March 2024. Academic publishing takes a long time, so at this point I'm really just waiting on page proofs. The Heart of Darkness stuff was especially cool this week. I think you all zeroed in on, pinch and pun probably intended, the main themes of the book. That passage about the beetle is an all-time favorite. Later in the book, Robert Waddington speaks very dismissively of Beatles, which is a super cool counterpoint. I think Kate mentioned the Heart of Darkness takeaway that colonization has negative impacts on the colonizer as well as the colonized. 
where I think Pinchon goes one step further than Conrad is that in Mason and Dixon, and GR too, those negative impacts are fetishized, and they become sexually alluring. The Black Hole of Calcutta becomes relevant in next week's reading. The company brothel in Cape Town features a recreation of it, meaning the corporate powers of the time are selling the negative impacts. The dehumanization and fears of colonization. Back to the colonists as sexual fantasy, which is a really twisted way to keep the whole colonial project going. You transform the risks and apprehensions into something tempting, alluring, and forbidden, thereby rendering it desirable. Pinchon writes a little about sexual control in his 1984 forward, and it's all over GR, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we certainly talked a bit around that in this particular episode, so hopefully you found our, our conversation on that inclusion particularly good. Um, I've wanted to read Pinchon's introduction to, to 1984 for a while now, but that gives me an additional reason to go ahead and, and take a look at that edition. Yeah, I've been looking for it. Um, I think one of our local bookstores here has it, and I just haven't gone and picked it up. Well, that will cover this week's uh, chapters. Uh, so like I mentioned at the beginning, we are following the subreddit read-along for Mason and Dixon from a couple years ago. So we're doing about five chapters at a time. Uh, next week, we're going to be covering chapters 16 through 20. So we hope you join us uh, in going through those. Uh, if you have questions or comments, uh, please send us an email, mappingthezonepod at gmail.com. Uh, we really appreciate everyone taking the time to uh, join us in this and for taking the time to listen. Uh, I do want to thank Connor for doing our editing. I think I forgot to shout him out last week. So, uh, Connor, I apologize for that. Um, but we really appreciate you um, doing all the the hard work that that entails. Uh, so we will see everyone next week to talk about chapters 16 through 20. Uh, have a good week and enjoy reading. Bye. See y'all. Bye.